Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. It's my privilege to get to introduce our guest preacher named Josh Blunt. So uh, we had a pastor's conference uh, this week. So uh, Sean and Jack and I were down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, just just our region of churches. So it's eight churches. Those pastors got together this week. And uh, we did some great stuff together. One of the things I got to ride in Josh's car with him, and like anyone who takes a trip from West Virginia to Charlotte, he had stopped to purchase a forge, which was in his car. So we squished in around the forge as we rode along. Yeah, I see some cheering in the back. That's right. So uh, this is not why Josh is here, but it's helpful to know something about a guy. So he likes to make knives on the side. And so he had found some, you know, really great deal on a used forge, had picked it up and was driving around with it. So Josh Blunt um, uh, has started a, a very tiny little business where he makes knives. And if your name was Josh Blunt and you started a business to make knives, you too would call them Blunt Knives. <laughs> How great is that? <laughs> How great is that? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Josh. He's been a pastor at the church in West Virginia, the Sovereign Grace Church in West Virginia, for years now. Um, he has a, a mind for God's Word that, that really stands out. I am very grateful for that. Um, oftentimes when I find myself wrestling with a kind of thorny theological issue, I'll give Josh a call and say, hey, Am I seeing this right? What am I missing here? Um, so he, he's a gift to, the, to Sovereign Grace Churches because of his ability to understand and rightly uh, apply God's Word. Um, but a mind is just a mind. He has a heart for the churches. Um, he, is, he is serving in a dear church tucked into a little valley in West Virginia. Um, and yet he loves us too. He's been here before and, and loves this church, loves the Lord. And then finally, it's just my, been my privilege to be his friend now for over a decade. And when I say friend, I mean friends. When, when our church went through uh, some significant struggles back in 2012, I was meeting with Josh and just a few other guys who were holding my hands up and keeping me in the pastorate and keeping this church as a part of Sovereign Grace. And it was, I mean, just a, less, than, less than one handful, and he was one of them. That, that helped support me during that time. Additionally, it's been my privilege to pray for his kids, and I know he has prayed a lot for mine as well. So we're able to bear each other's burdens, and that is a sweet thing. So I just wanted you to know, I know the man who's going to come address us, and I'm, I'm glad to commend him. And much more importantly than the man, I know the book he's going to open. Uh, and so we can be excited to open our Bibles, uh, and you can open up, I'll tell you, to the book of Psalms. And, uh, and Josh can give you the reference, but Josh, come on up. We are very, very grateful that you're here. Let's welcome Josh as he comes to claim God's word. Thank you, Ken. It is a joy to be with you all. I have been here several times, but um, telling someone not been in this building, so that sort of dates how long it's been since I've been able to be with you. I have great respect for your pastors and echo what Ken said, knowing your pastoral team over the years. Um, we get together for these, what we call our, our mini regional lunches. We're about four churches that can gather in Waynesboro, Virginia, um, kind of central for all of us. 
And that's been the context where Ken and I have shared updates about our life, about our churches. Uh, just thinking this morning, we have prayed over a lot of different issues together, and um, that is a gift that many people in pastoral ministry um, don't have that kind of friendship, and I'm deeply grateful that I do, and that Ken and the rest of your pastoral team I've known over the years in varying ways um, count on that short list of people that I would trust to call and have called with prayer requests. So I don't take that for granted. And I am glad to be able to be here with you this morning and to bring God's Word. You're in the book of Psalms, so turn to Psalm 90. That's our text this morning. Psalm 90 is a familiar psalm. If you have um, already looked at it, there, there are lines that stand out that we know well. Uh, but it's easy to miss the overall message of the psalm. This is a psalm that is about time. About the passing of time. And to set the stage, get our hearts positioned in the right way to look at this psalm, I want to read you another poem like a psalm, not inspired, but one that captures some of the mood of this psalm. I have to take you back to a night, October 29th, 1618, and in the Tower of London. It's not a normal poem. This is written, as tradition has it, by Sir Walter Raleigh, English explorer, politician, adventurer, who has spent his life serving the crown, but is now run afoul of changing political winds, and he has been thrown in the tower, and as tradition has it, it is the night before his execution when he takes up pen and writes these words, a poem about time. Even such is time, which takes in trust our youth, our joys, and all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. And let that linger for a moment. What is time? That thing that takes your youth, your joys, your all, and what does it pay you back with? Earth and dust. And then in the grave, shuts up the story of your days. And that's it. Now, Probably somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking, why did they invite this guy? What a happy way to begin our morning. Thank you, Eeyore. There's more to that poem, and there's more to this psalm, but there's not less than that piercing feeling. Time takes all that away and gives us nothing back. We don't like to think about that as a culture. Especially Americans, prosperous American, youth-driven society. What we want to think about is how we avoid thinking about the passing of time. We have arguments, catchphrases that push back, seize the day, your best life now. You, you might argue with that dour view of time, but I would challenge you, have that argument while walking through a cemetery. What we can't ignore is that our days and years are passing. Time is carrying us relentlessly on. And the question that poem, and more importantly, God's Word asks us this morning is, what are we meant to learn from that? What should we learn from our passing years? Now, there's more than merely rubbing our nose in our mortality, but there's not less. And so let's turn now to God's Word and hear an inspired psalm, a poetry about time. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses 
the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Lord, we sit before your word and we would ask with Moses that you would make us wise. Teach us this morning through your word. I pray that you would open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would do what no human words are capable of doing. And grant us supernatural insight. The revelation of your ways, your character, and our lives, our passing days and years in light of you. That we might turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. What should our passing years teach us? Here's what Moses is all about. These passing years are meant to teach us to find in God what we can't find anywhere else. But to get to that point, we have to let Moses bring us through this progression. If you think of this psalm as like a song, there are four verses. Now, I won't say verses because that will confuse you because we have verses marked out. Four stanzas, if you will. Four themes. And he begins this way. Our God is everlasting. It's one of those familiar lines. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's a profound thought. And remember, the man writing this, this is the only psalm of Moses. This is a man who spent his life wandering in the desert. And what does he say about his God? You are my home. You are our dwelling place. And in all generations, it's a subtle way even there, isn't it, of bringing in time. You could just say you've always been our dwelling place, but to say in every generation, one after another, after another, God remains the same. And then he steps back. Before the mountains were brought forth, 
or before you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is a grand vision of God, isn't it? Two verses in, he is our dwelling place and he has no beginning and no end. Now there's a right and a wrong way to think about what Moses is saying here. The wrong way would be to think God is just really, really old. Go far enough back, walk down the timeline, and we arrive at God. But that's not what he's saying. Now, I had perhaps maybe the best living illustration of this kind of going back in time about 10 years ago when my wife and I took a trip to Scotland. And we got to go to the oldest intact Stone Age settlement off the north coast of Scotland, an island called the Orkney Islands, and a place called Scarabray. It is a a World Heritage Center. It's about a 5,000-year-old village. And we went to tour it, and like everything, you had to pay. So there's a visitor center, and you go pay, and then you walk out the back door, and the village is some ways down. And what they've done, it was genius. I've never seen anything quite like this. There's a one wandering path that goes back to this village. And as you step out, they don't tell you what to expect. Just, here's the door, here's the path. We took a couple steps, and here's a marker. And it says, D-Day. And we kept walking, and I noticed another stone marker. It had something like, American founding, Declaration of Independence. Remember, I'm in Britain, so they have a little different perspective on that event than we do. We go back farther, we keep seeing markers. Markers from the Middle Ages. And we hit a marker for King Solomon and his temple. And we hit a marker for Stonehenge. And then we keep walking, and we arrive at the village. It's a living illustration. If you want to see how far back in time to get to this 5,000-year-old settlement, Walk and imagine passing each of those, mo those moments in time. And then you finally get there and you arrive at Scarabray, the 5,000-year-old Stone Age settlement. Here's what Moses is not saying. You can locate God on that line. It's not as though you walk back and back and back and past Scarabray and farther and farther and then finally put the time marker, God. Instead, before the mountains, before the world, from everlasting to everlasting. You walk back all the way to the beginning of all things. And you don't find God's beginning. You find the infinite abyss that is the eternal God. He's not the watchmaker. He is the time maker. Everything is in his hands, including even the passing time. He is everlasting. Let that thought stretch your brain. God has no time. Time is a work of his hand. That puts getting things into perspective into perspective, doesn't it? What do we mean when we say that? Let a couple weeks, months, maybe if you're really historically conscious, let a couple years pass. What about the perspective of the one to whom time is a work of his hand? That's the vision of God that Moses begins this psalm with. But now don't miss the connection. That God is our God. That God is the one to whom Moses says, you the everlasting God, you are our dwelling place. Our God, the one we can call our God, has no beginning and no end. He is everlasting. But now while Moses could linger and we could, we could worship around that thought, Moses is telling us this about God primarily to set up a contrast. Because we are not like that. Our God is everlasting, but our times are passing. And so he moves right away into this second stanza, this second theme, with words that might surprise us. Instead of a, 
hymn of praise to this everlasting God, now Moses says, you return man to dust. And you say, return, O children of man. Literally, sons of Adam. You hear those echoes? It is alluding, and in some places directly quoting Genesis 3. When God, following on Adam's fall, speaks these words, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Moses turns from the everlasting God to our times, which are passing day by day. Notice how he contrasts a thousand years in your sight, they're like a day. Or even just a watch in the night. That's not to give you a formula to calculate God years like you calculate dog years. It's to give you the contrast. The everlasting God and us who morning by morning, by year by year, are passing and slipping away. And why is that? What's the banner you put over those passing years? Return to dust. It is a sovereign command of the sovereign Lord. Return, O man, to dust. That's the verdict that hangs over these passing years. Now that's the point where we might begin to feel as though Moses is stepping on our toes. That might not necessarily sound like happy news to human beings. God has condemned us to return to dust. It raises the question, why? But we're not quite ready for that that yet we need to linger on this command because isn't it true that there's something that just wants to resist yeah return to dust but my life's different i'm significant yes we are but we don't escape this sovereign word it makes us uncomfortable but for certain human beings with enough power and wealth behind them it does more than make them uncomfortable it stimulates their active rebellion if you had enough money, it would sound something like this. Here's a headline from 2017. I think this was in Time Magazine. Silicon Valley's quest to live forever. Can billions of dollars worth of high-tech research succeed in making death optional? And it describes, the, the writer, reporter, has gathered on in Silicon Valley to observe a gathering dedicated to that question. Can we make death optional? He begins this way, on a velvety March evening in Mandeville Canyon, high above the rest of Los Angeles, Norman Lear's living room was jammed with powerful people eager to learn the secrets of longevity. When the symposium's first speaker asked how many people there wanted to live to 200 if they could remain healthy, almost every hand went up. Understandably then, the Moroccan Philo chicken puffs weren't going very fast. The venture capitalists were keeping slim to maintain their imposing vitality. The scientists were keeping slim because they'd read, and in some cases done, the research on caloric restriction. And the Hollywood stars were keeping slim because, of course. The premise of the evening was that answers, and maybe even an encompassing solution, were just around the corner. The party was the kickoff event for the National Academy of Medicine's grand challenge in healthy longevity, which will award at least $25 million for breakthroughs in this field. He goes on to describe the gathering, then he writes this. Jun Yun, a doctor who runs a healthcare hedge fund, announced that he and his wife had given the first $2 million towards funding this challenge. I have the idea that aging is plastic, that it's encoded, he said. If something is encoded, you can crack the code. The growing applause, he went on, if you can crack the code, you can hack the code. 
It's a big ask. More than 150,000 people die every day, the majority of aging-related diseases. Pause. Every time I read that, I want to say 150,000, which adds up to a 100% mortality rate. Small detail. Yet Young believes, he told me, that if we hack the code correctly, thermodynamically, there should be no reason we can't defer entropy, decay, indefinitely. We can end aging forever. Now, I hope this morning you haven't invested any of your money in that hedge fund, betting $25 million to end aging and make death optional. But the reason why I read that is because whether we're prone to that kind of folly with the money backing it, we're prone to the same kind of folly. We'd rather not think about our passing years that are under the judgment of God. Now, if you're betting on Silicon Valley, just hold up these two options. The billions of dollars of Silicon Valley and the sovereign word of the Lord returned to dust. Which will succeed? To ask it is to answer it, is it not? But whether we're prone to that kind of folly, just allow the word of God to sit on us here for a moment. It is not an accident that we age. The passing of time is not a glitch in the system. It is God's sovereign verdict hanging over us. Return to dust. Now that's sobering, I know. But if we don't reckon with that as Christians, here's what happens to us. We become people who lack ballast. You know what ballast is? The weight you put in a ship so that it doesn't bounce all over the place. Ballast is something solid enough to hold you steady through a storm. If we as Christians are people prone to the kind of folly that will not think of our passing years, we're ships that bounce on the surface, tossed everywhere. Moses is moving us towards a deep, abiding, everlasting hope. But you can't get there without staring this reality in the face. Because I don't know everyone here. I, I don't know you well enough to know, have you actually placed your faith in Christ? But if you're here this morning as a non-Christian or someone exploring or wondering, our instinctive reaction is to avoid thinking about the passing of our days until we have no more days. And so allow the word of the Lord to open your eyes. God is everlasting. Our God in Christ is everlasting, but our times are passing. Now that brings the question, why would God do this? Why would God impose this sovereign decree? It's hinted at there in verse 7 at the end of this stanza. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. And then Moses makes it explicit in the next verse. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. Our God is everlasting. Our times are passing, and our passing is judgment. That is why God has spoken this word. That is why Moses quotes Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1 or 2. This is the sovereign verdict, the judgment of God imposed because of the sin of humanity. And so Moses describes our iniquities constantly before the face of God. Even our secret sins, the ones that even the person on the pew next to you has no idea about, they stand in the light of God's searching presence. There is nothing hidden from Him. And because of that, His judgment is brought upon 
all of the human race. Notice how Moses describes it, verses 9, 10, and 11. Our days pass away. Our years end like a sigh. The years of our life, however many they mount up, 70, 80, the whole span, toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Then he ends with this, this searching question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Our passing, that verdict, return, O man, is a sovereign word of the Lord spoken in judgment upon our sin. Now that brings some very urgent questions. Wait a minute. Don't we sing about not being under the wrath of God? Isn't there no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus? What's Moses talking about? How can we be under the wrath of God and not condemned? Two answers to that, and that's a very important question. First one. Moses is writing at a moment in redemptive history when God's full plan is not yet clear. Moses knows that Israel is sinful. Moses knows the sins of his own heart. Moses does not yet know, it has not yet been revealed, how God will join himself to a sinful people. There's more to be said. We'll get to that. But there is one key way in which we still remain under the wrath of God. That's not God's personal punishment of each Christian's sin. It is his verdict over the entire human race, especially on our mortal bodies. Aging, aches, pain, and death are the sign that this creation is under God's judgment. And so Moses' question, it's a searching one, isn't it? In light of that, who considers the power of your anger? I wonder if you've had occasion to confront that power personally in an emergency room or a hospital bed watching cancer rack someone's body or Alzheimer's take, the per- Alzheimer's take the personality of someone you loved and completely change it or death intruding violently and suddenly into the life of someone that you expected to live much longer. Perhaps one of the most challenging moments in my pastoral life was doing the funeral for a 15-year-old non-Christian that I had been witnessing to who took his own life. I didn't expect to be participating in that part of his life. Given him a Bible, shared the gospel with him, and six months later he disappeared and taken his own life, and his family called and said, will you do the funeral? When you enter those kind of moments, what are you confronting? The power of God's wrath. Not, let me make absolutely clear, not God's personal punishment for each sin. We don't draw a one-to-one connection. You have cancer, that's because you did X, Y, or Z. It is God's general verdict over the whole human race. We share in it equally. From Adam onwards, humanity has been under this verdict of God. But that's meant to teach us something. The power of His anger. The sobriety of His wrath according to the fear of God. Let that weighty truth sink in. Because the result when it does will be this. Verse 12. Wisdom. When you reckon with this, when we number our days, our hearts grow wise, not foolish. That's what Moses is doing. 
That's what the Word of God is doing in us. What has this whole psalm been doing? Numbering our days. Days, years, mornings, the whole span. Consider them under the power of God's anger at human sin. The verdict imposed upon all of Adam's helpless race. And let that teach you wisdom. Now again, there's more to be said. But we won't get there without letting this linger upon us. Our God is everlasting. But our times are passing. And that passing is judgment. But then, Moses turns and he does something that yet again surprises us. Our passing is judgment, but he ends the psalm saying, still, our future is in God. Look beginning in verse 13. He moves from description to petition. From describing our circumstances to pleading directly to God. Return, O Lord. How long have pity on your servant? You could follow Moses' logic. Perhaps some of you are wired to see what he sees in our passing years, but you don't end up in the same place he does. You could follow the logic and conclude, God wants nothing to do with me. Moses' logic is, God is everlasting. I am under his judgment, so where could I go but to him? I must turn to him because there is no other hope. And so he begins to plead for his future with the God who has imposed judgment upon him. You can summarize what he's pleading for with three words. Presence, joy, and permanence. The presence of the Lord. Return, O Lord. Now that's a poignant plea, especially when you think of the man who's uttering it. Do you remember what happened to Moses as he leads the people of Israel to make a covenant with God, as God makes a covenant with them? He goes up on the mountain. He is receiving the covenant. He comes down, the people have already broken the covenant before they can even sign the contract. The golden calf, Exodus 32 and 33, and then what does Moses do? He goes back and he pleads with God, don't leave us. And God tells him, I'll send you to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, I'm paraphrasing, it says in effect, if you don't go to the promised land with us, it's not the promised land. Return, O God, don't leave us. That's what he's pleading. The presence of the Lord. The everlasting God who has imposed a just judgment upon our sin. Come, O Lord. Return. And notice, return and pity us. Let this God show compassion, so pity on us, as he returns to us. He pleads for the presence of the Lord. And then he prays for joy. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Lord, come back and what will be the result when you bring us your presence? It will be joy. Do you notice how realistic Moses is there? We used to sing a song, hopefully this is in your repertoire so I'm not stepping on anyone's toes. 20-some years ago, and I've grown up in Sovereign Grace Churches, I remember singing a song called The Happy Song. And all I can remember the chorus is repeating over and over, we're so happy. I thought it was cool as a teenager because it had a really good guitar line. The longer I walk with Christ, the more I realize there are a lot of times when I'm not just so happy. 
And sometimes that's not a result of lack of faith. It is a result of seeing what God wants me to see. If Moses turned from this and made us do a 180, gave us whiplash emotionally as he moves from, yeah, that's true, but just be happy. That would not be good news. But you notice, he's not, he's not a man whistling in the graveyard. He's praying in the graveyard. And what he says is, in the years in which I will see evil, let me taste joy. Can't escape the verdict that makes our days pass away under judgment. But Lord, you can give me joy in those days. You can satisfy me morning by morning. That is a very different vision than merely ignoring the hard realities and hiding and hoping they go away. I wonder this morning, how much emotional or spiritual energy do you spend trying not to see evil? That's a general description. He's not saying we seek out suffering. It's just a realistic view as your years and days mount up. You'll see evil. You will encounter brokenness. You will experience sin. Sins that you commit and sins committed against you. And many of us can spend a great deal of energy attempting to avoid that reality. If I just live my life right, then I won't have to experience that pain that that family is going through. If I do it right, Relational pain will not come to me. If I do it right, parenting brokenness will not come to me. Let the realism of Moses free you from that treadmill that you'll never escape from. Following Jesus faithfully, you will see evil. But you can taste joy. And the spiritual exhaustion that comes, the, the anxiety that crowds in from thinking, if I... I can only in some way manage my life, manage my circumstances, so I don't have to walk that road. You can just lay it aside. Lord, I don't know what the future holds, but my future is in you, and morning by morning you can give me joy. Don't expend all that energy trying to escape the world that is under God's judgment. Rather, seek your future, seek your joy in that God. One more Thing I want to say about that. If you're here this morning and perhaps the dust of death or the experience of those evil days clings closely. Maybe you're walking through something right now where the harder parts of this psalm I don't have to convince you of. You're deeply aware. Yeah, life is like that. Let me tell you how I taste it. If you're in that circumstance but then the move to talking about joy feels like a jolt. I don't know how to get there from here. Here's what the psalm is not saying. Deny the evil days you're seeing. Moses is more realistic than we often are, isn't he? Our years, toil and trouble. He is not escaping from any hard reality. What he's saying is the only solution to that hard reality is the presence and joy that comes from God. If you're there this morning, if you say, I don't see joy right now. It's not in my heart. I can hide it during worship, but I'm not worshiping with gladness like the other people around me because of what I'm going through. The way forward is not to deny the hard realities of life. It is to recognize that only God is the remedy. You're like a person. I've had this experience many times being outdoors. When you're in the dark, before daylight, it really is dark. And you can't deny all I see is darkness. 
But here's what you know, especially if you're cold and really waiting for that moment. The sun will come up. And light, when it dawns, it will dawn in one place. So I'm going to sit in the dark and look to the east until that light breaks through. Until the light breaks into the darkness. What Moses is calling you to hear is to spiritually face east. The years are evil. The passing of our years accumulates weights and sorrows. And in those moments where it is hard to see joy, here's what you can't do. Conclude that the light will never dawn. It may feel very dark right now, perhaps because it is very dark. But the light shall shine into the darkness. Turn east and wait on the only one who can bring joy. Return, O Lord, your presence, your joy. And then he ends with a plea for permanence. Verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Only petition he doubles directly. What is he pleading for? Lord, all of that, your presence, bringing joy, satisfying with your steadfast love, let it last. And isn't that a poignant plea from the man who entered the presence of the Lord of the mountain and came down to a sinful people. Lord, what I experience in your presence, what we have experienced in those moments of your power displayed in history, Lord, let that last. Establish us. The work of our hands as your people give us permanence. And so Moses has moved us from our everlasting God through our passing years under judgment, to a future hope that is in God. Presence, joy, and permanence. But we're still not quite done. Because there's a cynical question that you might be asking that you actually have to ask in order to feel the full weight of this good news. The cynical question is this. Did God actually answer Moses' prayer? Because if you know Moses' story, you might read it, and a heart wrestling with the goodness of God could think, yeah, you didn't answer that prayer for him either. He died on a mountain outside of, out of the promised land and never entered. Permanence was not granted to Moses. The work of his hands was not established forever. And so there's a, there's a lingering, almost sadness when you think of this petition of Moses in light of how his life ended. And I say you have to ask that question because you and I still have to wonder how can our future be in God if we really are passing under His judgment? Is there a future that escapes that judgment? Or are we all, like Moses, pleading with a God who will one day ask us to die on a mountaintop still not seeing the promised land? Did God answer Moses' prayer? In his lifetime? No. But the man who died on a mountaintop was given a second mountaintop experience. Because you remember, Moses dies outside the promised land, and thousands of years later, Moses comes back on the stage. He comes back on the Mount of Transfiguration when God allows Moses to see the permanent work of his hand in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Moses' plea does not terminate with the end of his life. God's dealings with Moses are not done when Moses dies. Moses, I hear you. You are my servant. I will let you see the promised land. But more than that, I will bring you back and let you see my son. And on a mountaintop, as Moses and Elijah together see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ unveiled in glory, they are seeing the permanent work of God. And Moses died on a mountaintop, but Jesus will not die on that mountaintop. He will leave that mountaintop on his way to Calvary, bearing the wrath of God for his people so that our future can be in God. There is no permanence in Moses' plea without Jesus' death and resurrection. But with that Easter Sunday morning when he rose triumphantly from the grave, there is a future for the people of God that extends even beyond this life. God's plans for us never terminate in this world. It is under his judgment our years are passing. We will cross that river and we will be welcomed in the celestial city on the other side. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a permanent hope and future is available for the people of God. What our passing years are meant to teach us always leads us to Jesus. If our hope is in anything else, these passing years haven't made us wise. Yes, you and I will see evil. Our days will pass with toiling and sighing and we will experience the joy of the Lord. But permanence is not found this side of the grave. But this side of the grave is not the end of the story. All that is to say that what Sir Walter Riley wrote about in that poem is true of us too. But I told you there was more to that poem than what we read at the beginning. Because it would appear that Sir Walter was himself a believer. So he writes these words, capturing well, I think, our experience of time, but something beyond that. Even such is time, which takes in trust our youth, our joys, and all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. Where, O oh death, is thy victory? Where, O oh death, is thy sting? Thanks be to God who gives us a future in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we sit under your word, made freshly aware of the power of your anger and your wrath against our sin and against the sins of all our helpless race. Oh, that's sobering, but that brings wisdom. And Lord, that gives us great joy when we think what you have done through Jesus Christ. To give us a future beyond the grave. A hope indestructible kept in heaven for us until that day when we see you face to face. Lord, for those of us here who have placed our trust in you, I pray, deepen our confidence in the future we have in you. And if there are any here who do not yet know you, we pray as your church, open their eyes that through
through the searching, living and active word, you would give them the wisdom that leads them to Jesus. Open their eyes and awaken their hearts. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.